The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. If you turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 12. Now, last time I brought the word to you here several months ago, we finished up our series on union with Christ. Uh, and what we're going to do today, I would consider a bridge to the next series. Not an introduction, just a bridge to connect the two. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, the next series will be uh, what I really think is the logical follow-on to a consideration of union with Christ. Uh, because as we went through that, we looked at various elements or aspects of union with Christ. Uh, we looked at the fact that it was decreed in eternity past in the covenant of redemption. Uh, we looked at how it was established by the person and work of Jesus Christ and his work of redemption how we enter into union with Christ through the new birth. And then we looked at the nature of that union as a, as a reciprocal relationship with the Trinity and the believer, uh, its organic, vital uh, uh, nature of it. Uh, and then we also looked at the fact that union with Christ brings about a great transformation in the sinner. And we looked at various applications and implications of that and along the way, there was one continual question that would keep coming up in my mind as I was working my way through that. Is that we were looking at that from, from the perspective of, of me as the individual Christian united to Christ through his saving work. But if that's true of me, that's true of every individual Christian. I'm united to Christ. You're united to Christ. What are the implications of that regarding our relationship? That's the next series. That's the communion of the saints. In fact, our confession has a whole chapter devoted on it. So that's where we're going to be going next time. Today I want to bridge the gap there. okay? Because I think there's something that it will be helpful for us to consider before we launch into that. And that is... That as we uh, as we kind of got down in the weeds a little bit, and we did make application of these truths about our union with Christ as we were dealing with them, let's back out of a little bit. Let's take a little bigger view from a, a, the ten thousand foot view, and kind of ask the question: What now? As we've looked at all these elements of union with Christ and how they might apply to us individually and the implications for our life, but what does it mean for me as a believer? now united to Christ. It can kind of put us in a position of asking the question, well, what now? 
What now? And that's really what we're going to explore today in verses 1 and 2. And it does end up being a good bridge to our first subject on the communion of the saints, which is our common union, which we're going to actually cover in verses 3 through 6 in this same chapter. But I think it's good for us to consider verses 1 and 2 in light of the condition that we find ourselves in as redeemed sinners united to Christ and the, the life God calls us to in union with Christ. Because we're called to a transformed life. And so we have to ask the question, what does a transformed life in union with Christ look like? And I think verses 1 and 2 give us the general answer to that question. And our series on communion of the saints will give us the detailed answer to that question. So today is a bridge. And again, I believe this is foundational to our understanding of our relationship to one another but not just to one another, also to our, our individual role or place in the local church. So that's where we're headed today and how it ties into where we'll be going the next time. So let's come to our text today, Romans 12. We're going to be looking at 1 and 2, but I want to read through 1 through 6a. So if you turn your attention to the reading of God's Word. Paul writes in Romans 12.1, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. Now, as we come to this passage in Romans 12, we have to recognize that Romans 12.1 is the hinge on which the book of Romans turns. Most of you think are familiar with this pattern we see in most of the New Testament epistles of of the writer, particularly the Apostle Paul, that in the first chapters we have uh, he he writes to us basically doctrine, indicative statements of Christian truth, and then in the later chapters he he talks to us about practice or how we live or how we live out that doctrine in the Christian life. Okay, so the first part of the book, doctrine, truth. Second half of the book, how do I live according to this truth that, that the writer has just, has just taught us? And, and Romans is the same. So when we come to 12.1, we've had 11 chapters of doctrine, 11 chapters of Christian truth. And Paul is now taking the step into, now, based on this truth, here's how we are to walk. 
Here's how we are to live the transformed life. And I think it's interesting to look at how he ends 11 chapters of doctrine in verse 36 of chapter 11. Look up to it there. Because he ends by saying, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So he ends 11 chapters of doctrine with doxology, with praise, with the worship of God. But what we have to also understand is, in one sentence, Paul summarized that 11 chapters of doctrine. Look at what he says there. For from him and through him and to him are all things. What he's asserting here is that God is the source from him, the agent through him, and the goal to him of creation, redemption, and providence, which is what he spent 11 chapters writing about. So he says that God is the source of creation, redemption, and providence. It all comes from him. God is the agent of creation, redemption, and providence. It's all carried out by Him. But God is also the goal of creation, redemption, and providence. It is all for the purpose of filling this earth with His worshipers to His glory. And then now we come to 12.1. And it begins with a therefore. The NAS I'm reading out of says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, Other translations may put the therefore first. The therefore points back to what comes before. And what he's saying now is now, based on this truth that God is the source, agent, and goal concerning creation, redemption, and providence, he urges us to live a transformed life as a new creation in union with Christ and in union with one another. And so we're going to look at this exhortation, and we're going to consider it under three headings. What we're going to be looking at here regarding this this transformed life that we now have through union with Christ is, first of all, we're going to look at its gospel source, because it comes to us out of the gospel. We're going to look at the great change, because it is a transformed life. And then we're going to look at the good effect that it produces in us. So first, the gospel source. He opens with, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And when he says urge, what he has in mind here is the strongest possible exhortation he can give. He is talking about exhorting us in a way that he could not possibly press this upon us any harder. And I find it interesting how he does that. Now think about this for a second. If you wanted to come alongside a Christian brother or sister, and you wanted to exhort them in the strongest possible way, press them as hard as you possibly could to live a transformed life to the glory of God, on what basis would you do that? You might say, well, we have... The law of God that now under the new covenant is our our rule for life and our 
friend to show us how to live in covenant fellowship with God, that would certainly be appropriate. But yet Paul doesn't choose that here. Instead, he chooses the mercies of God. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. It is on the basis of what God has done for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the mercies of God. The mercies of God to sinners. You see, we have to understand, God saves us according to His mercy. Therefore, there is no stronger basis for exhortation. We see that over in Titus 3, 4, and 5. He says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. God saves according to His mercy. And so when Paul now comes to us in Romans 12.1 and wants to exhort us in the strongest possible fashion to live a transformed life to the glory of God, he does it on the basis of the mercies of God, all of God's saving purposes and work in Jesus Christ. And when we consider this in light of Romans 11.36, what we realize is that's what he's just taught 11 chapters of doctrine on. Consider Romans, how he starts out in Romans. In Romans 1.16, Paul began that instruction with this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And 11 chapters later he ends, For from him and through him and to him are all things, to Him be the glory forever. Amen. And sandwiched in between that are 11 chapters of the saving mercies of God. What do we read in there? In between, we read that we all stand justly condemned by the law. That we cannot be made right with God by our own good deeds or by the works of the law. That our justification comes only by faith in the works of another that saves us from the wrath of God. And that in this salvation, we are set free from the bondage of sin. We are set free to serve Christ. That, we, that, that, that in here, we read that we are united to Christ. And yet in this union with Christ, this, this almost dichotomy that sin still remains in us and wars against these new desires of our heart to serve God. And that in this war with the flesh, we read that we live by the Spirit now. Not by the flesh, we live by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. And as we do so, God causes all things to work together for the good of His people, to conform us into the image of His Son, and to take us to eternal glory as conquerors and victors in Christ. Do you see now why Paul would end that with, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. These are the saving mercies of God to sinners. And it's these gospel mercies that form the foundation 
and the motivation for God's people to live out their salvation in fear and trembling. It all comes from gospel mercy. It is because of what God has done in Christ that he goes on to say in Romans now, because of what God has done in Christ, we are now to be devoted to one another. Chapter 12. Because of what God has done in Christ, we are to be subject to governing authorities and love our neighbors. Chapter 13. Because of what God has done in Christ, we are to walk by faith with a clear conscience. Chapter 14. Because of what God has done in Christ, we are to deny ourselves for the sake of the brethren. Chapter 15. And because of what God has done in Christ, we are to live in peace in the community of faith. Chapter 16. And we are called to all of this only in the saving and sanctifying work of grace that is ours through faith in Christ. So we cannot take up a consideration of how do we now live in union with Christ and one another without first recognizing that we live out of the ongoing work of gospel grace in our lives. And this gospel grace affects a great change bringing about the total transformation of the whole person in Christ. And that's our second point. Because he goes on to say, he says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So in this great change that takes place, we have this exhortation to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. And we have this command to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. So let's look first at presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. When we come to this term present, when he says present your bodies, that is a religious technical term in relation to offering up sacrifice to God. And so what is in view here? He is describing the worshiper bringing his sacrifice to God and offering that sacrifice to God as his act of worship. And so when he tells us to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice, what he's essentially saying is, is now as redeemed sinners under the new covenant, we bring ourselves to God as our sacrifice of worship. But yet, there's something rather odd about the way he says it. We are to present our bodies. Now, I think we're going to see as we progress here, he is talking about the whole person. Okay? But why does he say we are to present our bodies to God as living sacrifices? And I think there's a couple, uh, couple reasons for that. Uh, the first is we see over in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? One of the things we've continually repeated regarding union with Christ is one aspect of you, we are united to Christ by the indwelling of the Spirit. That when we come to faith in Christ and we are united to Him, that is the work of the Spirit of God who regenerates the heart, gives us a new heart, 
brings about the new birth, and then takes up residence within. Okay? And so now we are the temple of the living God. His presence, His special presence, we've been talking about in Sunday school under the New Covenant, is in the believer, where He has taken up residence. And He goes on to say, we're no longer our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. But Romans also gives us a contrast in chapter 6. Because prior to being saved, prior to being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we read over in in Romans 6 that these bodies of ours were instruments of unrighteousness. Before Christ, we live rebellious lives against Christ, against God, with all of our hatred of God being worked out in the sinful actions of these bodies. It was with this body that I intentionally sinned against God for years before He saved me. But now, through union with Christ, and through this great transformation that takes place through the Gospel, this body is not my own. This body now belongs to God who has redeemed us. And Romans 6.19 tells us that we are to present our bodies consecrated to God for His service as instruments of righteousness. So in this transformation that's taken place, part of that transformation is this body of mine has been transformed from being an instrument of unrighteousness to being an instrument for righteousness in the hands of God. And so therefore, we are to take this body and we are to present this body and offer it up to God as a living and holy sacrifice, is how he describes it. And this is a contrast to Old Covenant sacrifices. We are a living and holy sacrifice. Under the Old Covenant, the sacrifices that were brought and put on the altar were dead. And we have to understand the significance of this. They brought dead sacrifices because these were reminders of the consequences of sin. And these, these pointed to the way of redemption. It would be through the shed blood of another that they would be redeemed. But they also had to offer these sacrifices under the Old Covenant continually, which was a reminder that this was not a sufficient sacrifice. And there was another sacrifice to come that would be sufficient. And so it pointed them to their Redeemer, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. But our sacrifice is a living sacrifice. And it's a living sacrifice because we are spiritually alive to God in Christ Jesus because of that once-for-all sacrifice He made to redeem us from our sin. And we have been made holy by Christ's giving of Himself for us. So now we offer our redeemed lives to God as our living sacrifice to Him. We were once dead in our trespasses and sin. And we could only offer God the the filthy rags of dead works righteousness before Christ. But now in Christ, we've been made spiritually alive. 
we are robed in Christ's spotless righteousness. So now we can offer up our bodies to God as a spotless and unblemished living sacrificial offering. One commentary said this. It said, The death of the one Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world has swept all dead victims from off the altar of God to make room for the redeemed themselves as living sacrifices to Him who made Him to be sin for us while every outgoing of their grateful hearts in praise and every act prompted by the love of Christ, is itself a sacrifice to God of a sweet-smelling savor. Did you catch the last part of that quote? Everything prompted by love of Christ and offered up in faith is an acceptable sacrifice of worship to our God. And this is what he's talking about as our reasonable or rational spiritual service of worship there at the end of verse 1. Now some of your translations may see your, say your reasonable service of worship. Some may say your rational service of worship. Mine says your spiritual service of worship. And they're all legitimate translations. The problem is no one of them fully captures the full essence of what he's seeking to communicate there. So it's not reasonable as opposed to unreasonable, or rational as opposed to irrational. Uh, what he's getting at here is that uh, it, it, it's denoting that which pertains to coming from the inner man, out of the heart, out of the mind. Okay, uh, it, 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 So it does pertain to our reason. Uh, and it doesn't stand opposed to that which is foolish or unreasonable, but what it stands opposed to was the external service of the Jews that they relied on for salvation. Okay, see, the worship, the worship of the Christian is that which comes out of the inner man. It, it pertains to the mind. It is that which is spiritual. It comes out of the heart. Where that of the Jew was external. They praised God with their mouths, but what was their condemnation? Their hearts were far from Him. So in other words, this is our purposeful, intentional response to God for the saving grace that we have received in Jesus Christ. And it comes from a regenerate heart and a renewed mind. Our service of God is the free worship of the mind. It is the free worship that comes out of the heart. It's not forced or constrained. It is voluntary. It is the voluntary offering of ourselves, all that we are and all that we have, to God. And when we consider the character of God, we have to say the character of God is such that it should lead us to that. When we consider the majesties of our Creator, the glory of our Redeemer, is this not a fitting response? God is a God of mercy. God is a God of long-continued and patient forbearance with sinners. And it should influence us to devote ourselves to Him. 
And as I've already said, even though it's not the point of the text, when we consider our, our spiritual service of worship to him, we would find that to do anything less than to be completely devoted to him actually is unreasonable and irrational. And this whole sold offering of all that we are to God is the only sacrifice that is pleasing to Him. It is the only sacrifice that is acceptable to Him. Anything less is not the first fruits of a grateful heart offered in faith. Half measures are unacceptable offerings. To hold back any part of our life from complete devotion to God is to withhold from God that which is due Him. And this brings us to the second component of this element of great change, and that is renewing our minds. You see, a spiritual service to God that is acceptable to Him starts in the mind as the engine that moves the body to these acts of service as an instrument of righteousness. So we will never be of service to God unless the mind is is right with God. And so to that end, Paul gives two commands regarding our minds, a negative and a positive. And the first is the negative. Do not be conformed to this world. The second is a positive and a contrasting statement. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the first, the negative. Do not be conformed to this world. This idea of being conformed means to passively allow yourself to be changed, to be like something. To allow yourself to be formed or molded in thought and behavior in accordance with a particular pattern or set of standards. So to be conformed means to be pressed into a shape by outward pressure. And he's saying, don't let that happen. Don't let yourself being pressed into this shape by this outward outward pressure, because he says, do not be conformed to this world. Think of clay in a mold. Clay is soft. It's malleable. It's passive. You take the mold and you put it around the clay and you exert outward pressure on the mold, pressing it in on the clay, and it squeezes the clay into the pattern on the inside of the mold, forcing it in to every nook and cranny and crevice so that when you pull the mold off, What you have is is an image of what the the inside of the the mold was. And that's the way it is with us in this world. The world is all around us. The world exerts its pressures upon us through culture and through custom and through coercion to form us in its image. And we have to remember that this world is the domain of darkness in the grip of the prince of the power of the air. So the form it's seeking to mold us into is consistent with the wickedness of this world. 
And if we are passive and we do nothing, and we allow the world to press in upon us with this form and with this mold and exert this pressure on us, bit by bit, we will be made like this present evil age. We are sojourners in this world. This world is not our home. We are not to be like this world. But if we are passive, this world will press in upon us and we will be gradually made into its image. So he says, do not be conformed to this world. Instead, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So where conformity is the result of pressure from the outside in, transformation is the result of renewing grace that works from the inside out. Conformity presses in, giving you the outward shape or appearance of something. Transformation starts within and involves radical change that changes the essential nature. And it begins with a new heart and regeneration, and then progressively, bit by bit, making us more and more like Christ, conforming us outwardly into the image of Christ, and then that works its way out in our offering of our bodies as living and holy sacrifices of spiritual worship or spiritual service to God. You see, the antidote to the pressures of this world seeking to conform us is not to fight against the world. The antidote is not to go out and try to redeem the culture. The antidote is to be actively engaged in the means of grace that renews the mind. Now this verb transformation here, where he says be transformed by the renewing of your mind, it is in the passive voice. It would be more accurately said, let yourselves be transformed. You have to allow it to happen. This is another way of saying, do not interfere with the work of the Holy Spirit in you. But this command is also in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. We have a responsibility to be actively engaged in doing something. So our responsibility for this transformation is not canceled. This is not let go and let God. We must position ourselves for the Spirit of God to do this work, and we must not resist this work, but submit to it. Now some here might use the word, we must cooperate with this work. That could be a fair word, as long as you understand you are not contributing any effective means. So I prefer to stay away from it. But this transformation, and that's because of what the text tells us, this transformation comes through renewing. It's renewing that brings about the transformation. And although I have a responsibility to be actively engaged in the means of that renewing, it's God who works through that means to cause the renewing. And to be renewed means to cause something to become new and different 
with the implication of becoming superior. Which is why I can't do it. See, it's a complete change for the better through the work of the Spirit. And it starts in regeneration. The old man has been crucified and remains in the grave. The transformation begins with the new man with a regenerate heart. Okay, But it's considered a transformation because we are still in this body of flesh with remaining sin. So there's this need for this progressive change, this progressive sanctification. But at heart, we're a new creation. So although we position ourselves for this work by attending upon the means of grace, you all know what I mean by the means of grace, right? First and foremost, what's happening right here, right now, in the corporate assembly of God's people, But secondarily, what takes place in family worship, what takes place in individual worship, those are supports and preparatory to what goes on here. We need to be engaged in all of those. We need to be exerting ourselves in the study of the Word, in the meditation upon the Word, in the memorizing of the Word, in attending the preaching and teaching of the Word, But what we have to understand, it is God who is the one doing the work of renewing our minds through this Word, by His Spirit. Turn over real quick to Philippians chapter 2. I want you to see this with your eyes as we briefly consider it. Because I think it helps bring this out for us. Philippians 2, verse... uh, Well, we're going to read 12 and 13. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So here in the context of obedience, The context here is obedience. It is us exercising ourselves in following after Christ. He says in verse 12, Just as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's our active engagement. But he says, For it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is God who is working in you as you actively engage yourself in these means of grace and faithfully strive and labor at those means of grace. It's not you changing yourself through what you do. It's God working through those those means to radically transform you by changing your essential nature. So we must receive this word in faith when it comes to us through the preaching and teaching, when it comes to us through our own reading and study, we must not resist the work of the Spirit as we receive the Word. Or as we receive the Word. You know, I have to tell you, it was a radical paradigm shift for me to understand what goes on here in the preaching of the Word when in my seminary class on preaching, they referred to what goes on here as a redemptive event. 
And they said, you know, it's not, it's not important that people remember your sermon. That's, that's not what's important here. It's not that they remember it when they leave. It's not that they even remember the outline, although we give these handy little three-point outlines and, you know, easy to remember and all that. They said the main point is, while the Word is being preached, the Holy Spirit is at work in the heart of the hearer doing His work of grace. That's what's primary about what's going on here. So if you walk out of here and don't remember anything I said, that's fine. What's important is as you listen to it now, what God by His Spirit is doing in you. And so what's important, so as you sit under the preaching of the Word, that you willingly receive that Word in faith, that you not resist the work of the Spirit, so that as the Word comes to us through these means that God has given, we must receive the Word with gladness, not despise the prophetic utterances of our teachers and preachers. Submit to the Spirit of God through the teaching that He he brings to us through our pastors who have been given to the church as a gift, receiving from them the ministry of the Word by which God is at work renewing our minds. And this is the means that He uses to transform us. And now with our minds as a renewed spiritual engine according to the grace of God, it now drives our bodies in the direction of obedience and offering up this rational or reasonable or spiritual service of God to His glory. Which brings us to the third point. It does all of this to good effect. Meaning it actually happens. He says that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, the first question we have to answer is, well, what is the will of God? What is the will of God? Well, we have the revealed will of God to us in His Word. So what does God say in His Word is His will for you, Christian? 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. See, it's God's will, Christian, that you be holy. It's God's will that you be made into the image of His Son. Uh, As Peter writes, it's His will that you be holy as He is holy. And the word prove here means to explore or investigate or ascertain and determine. Uh, The sense is that a renewed mind is essential to knowing God's will. If your mind is still held captive by the world, uh, you can't understand the things of God, the foolishness to the unregenerate heart and the unregenerate mind. So first of all, there needs to be this renewed mind. It's essential to knowing God's will. And a mind uh, uh, that is not renewed can't discern heavenly things. So this renewed mind operates on the principle of faith. Because out without faith, it's impossible to please God for he who comes to God must believe that he is, Hebrews eleven sixteen. A renewed mind has a disposition to obey God. Because with this new heart, our desire is to seek God, to follow after God, to please God. So this mind, this renewed mind, is prepared to understand God's precepts. 
in a renewed mind, there's going to now be a correspondence between the desires of the heart and God's will. Because as my mind is renewed, the transforming effect is it takes my will and shapes it into and makes it correspond to God's will as revealed in His Word. Which means now this renewed mind is going to embrace God's law. It's going to embrace God's Word. It's going to see the propriety and the beauty of God's commands to me. And this will then yield a life and walk that is upright and honorable and acceptable to God. A life that is conformed to the image of His Son, Romans 8.29. You see, this is the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is to walk in full measure with undivided loyalty and devotion, completely in the knowledge of the revealed will of God that comes through the renewing of our judgment in our renewed mind by the Spirit. So when we come to the question of, well, what does life lived in union with Christ and in union with one another look like? This is what it is. It's a life of total devotion to Jesus Christ. It is a life in which we hold nothing back from Him. You know, it's um, you know, in, in thinking about this, Paul Paul pictures uh, uses a couple different word pictures to describe the Christian life, but one of them is warfare. In fact, he says at the end of his life, "I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have run the race." He also uses athletic contests. And sometimes, any of you that played sports, that when when, when they talk about competing in athletics and giving it your all. They talk about leaving it all on the field. You go out on the field of contest, you give your all, you hold nothing back, you leave it all there. And that's the way it is with the Christian life. It's a warfare. It's a battlefield. In this life, we leave it all on the field. We pour it all out there for Christ. We hold nothing back. We give it all to Him. In fact, that's why Paul at the end of his life described his life as, he says, my life has been poured out as a drink offering to Christ. It was all poured out on the battlefield of life and ministry. Every ounce of it, every drop of it was left there. Nothing was held back from Christ. It was all offered up as His spiritual service of worship to His Lord and His God. And brothers and sisters, that is what the transformed life is. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's how Paul opened his doctrine in Romans. And we have to understand, this encompasses the entirety of our salvation from our justification all the way to our glorification when, when Christ calls us home. It is by the grace of the gospel that we are dead to sin and alive to God. It is by the grace of the gospel that we are now able and willing to be a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. 
So brothers and sisters, let us bask in the sanctifying love of God to us in the ministry of His Word. Understand that when God's Word comes to you, that is a sign of His exceeding love to you. Let us joyfully receive the work of the Spirit in us through that Word. Let us earnestly pray that God would do this work of total transformation of our whole person inside and out, achieving His redemptive purpose of transforming us into the image of His Son. And let us in gratitude for saving grace be completely devoted to God in a life of joyful, obedient service, living in conformity to God's will as revealed in His Word, walking in that which is good, and acceptable, and perfect. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Poway, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com. We pray for grace to receive this from your hand, this gift of salvation. Uh, Father, we pray for grace to receive the sanctifying work of your Spirit in us through the means that you have appointed. And Father, we pray that you would do this work in us to will and to work to your good pleasure to accomplish your redemptive ends for our good and your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.